0: Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Wednesday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. You'll recall, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that those with him on the Mount of Olives who witnessed his ascension, we read in Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, that they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath-day walk from the city. And when they arrived... Now in those days Peter stood up among the believers a group now numbering about 120 and he said brothers the scripture had to be fulfilled which the holy spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of david concerning judas that is judas iscariot who served as a guide for those who arrested jesus he was one of our one of our number one of us And he shared in this ministry, and we read parenthetically, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about it, and they called that field, in their language, akeldama, that is, the field of blood in Aramaic. Well, we read in the Synoptic Gospels that Judas went out and hanged himself. So what happened? Did Judas hang himself? Or did he trip in a field and burst open? Well, I think that Judas indeed went out and hanged himself. But he wouldn't have done it in a public place. He would have done it outside of town, perhaps in an isolated area. And he probably hung there for who knows how many days. And of course, if you hang yourself and you die, over time, all the body fluids head south. And when they finally found him, they cut him down. And when he hit the ground, he burst open like a ripe watermelon. I think that's a pretty good explanation and a rather funny one at the same time. Well, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So Peter determines they have to replace Judas Iscariot. Therefore, he says, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, from the time that John had baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, initiating his public ministry, A.D. 29, until the time he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives just a few hours earlier in this story. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, did you get that? It's really important that the one they choose to replace Judas, to make up the 12, capital A, Apostles, must have been an eyewitness to everything in Jesus' public ministry, from his baptism all the way through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So who do they choose? Well, they propose two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two men you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. Which Judas left to go where he belonged. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Again, to be a capital A apostle, you had to have been an eyewitness to Jesus' entire public ministry. Now, this is AD 32. Time goes on, and Peter, the acknowledged leader of the apostles, begins his ministry. And in AD 64, in Rome, Peter is arrested at the beginning of the persecution under Nero, 64 to 66. Peter's arrested, he's condemned to death, and he's cooling his heels in the Mamertine prison in Rome. And he writes his second epistle, to us, to me and you and all those who have followed in his footsteps. And he says in Second Peter chapter 1, at verse 12, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. The death sentence has been signed. The date has been set. Peter will be crucified. He knows it, and he's okay with it. But until that happens, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And then he says something very, very important. We, the capital A Apostles, we, the many thousands of disciples that followed Jesus during his public ministry, and all those people afterward, thanks to Peter, Paul, and the other apostles getting the gospel out to the Roman world. He says, we, the capital A Apostles, did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were I witnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, At the Mount of Transfiguration, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, Peter, James, and John, who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets, made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But above all, Most important, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. No prophet who was writing in Old Testament times, none of the apostles who speak to us, none, did this on their own, Peter says emphatically. For prophecy, the word of God, never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is beromanoi, and it pictures the wind billowing the sail on a boat. And what better imagery for Peter, the fisherman? When you put the sail up and the wind catches in the sail, the boat moves. The master sailor at the tiller guides it. So prophecy or the writing of scripture or the speaking of the word of God is a combination of the skill, talent, and ability of the master sailor at the tiller guiding the ship and the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, in the sails. I think that's a perfect image for the inspiration of scripture. But I make the point of being an eyewitness because it brings up to me something very puzzling. Why would Judas Iscariot betray Jesus? He was there, Peter told us, in Acts when they were going to replace him. He was with them from the beginning. From Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, all through his public teaching, all the way up to his death, burial. And in Judas' case, he didn't see the resurrection, but he was there for the entire active ministry up to that point. He, like Peter and the other capital A apostles, was an eye witness. So how could he betray Jesus? It's puzzled me forever so what do we really know about judas well the name judas is simply judah that's jacob's fourth son and iscariot is from the hebrew of kirioth a man of kirioth a village about 10 miles south of hebron mentioned in joshua 15 at verse 25 as one of the cities in judah and if that's the case judas is the only one of jesus 12 disciples not from galilee now that could be significant because as we know if you've been with me for any length of time galilee was a hotbed of radical revolutionary thought and action every single revolutionary movement in the first half of the first century a.d in palestine originated in Galilee, and it came to a climax in the Great Jewish War of A.D. 66 to 72, which was begun by the zealots from Galilee. Judah, however, was a much more conservative place. So perhaps Judas didn't quite fit into the group. Judas is the son of Simon Iscariot, we learn and Judas is always listed last in the list of Jesus 12 disciples Peter and Andrew James and John are always first Judas is always last his motives for betraying Jesus are unclear in the gospel accounts opening the door to considerable speculation John tells us that Judas held the money bag, and used to steal the contributions. We read that in John 12 at verse 6. And we're told in Luke 22 and John 13 that Satan enters Judas, prompting him to act. Judas went to the chief priest. And we read in Matthew 26 that he said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And he is paid 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. So he did it out of greed? Out of avarice? Well, what would 30 pieces of silver be worth? The Greek word in Matthew 26, verse 15, is arguria, silver coins, not specifying what type of coins they were. The best guess is they were Tyrian shekels. A Tyrian shekel contained about 14 grams of silver. And at today's value, a Tyrian shekel would be worth about $8. So the 30 Tyrian shekels given to Judas would be worth about $240. That Tyrian shekel, by the way, was minted in Tyre between 18 BC and AD 68. It's a good guess on what type of coin it would have been, but $240? That wouldn't provide much of a motive for betrayal. It must have been something else. When Jesus is condemned and sentenced to death, Judas returns to the chief priests in remorse, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood, and he flings the money back at them. And Matthew 27 tells us that Judas then went off and hanged himself. Now that complicates the case. If Judas betrayed Jesus, not for money, it's not worth it for $240. But perhaps, like Iago in Shakespeare's Othello, it was malignant malice but then again if his plan worked why would he go back to the Sanhedrin throw the money back and go out and hang himself that's not the action of a man whose plan worked it's the action of a man whose plan went horribly wrong so we need to really think about this what could the motive have been good question and it really takes us to the crux of the matter scripture does give us insight as i noted we know that judas was the only one of the twelve not from galilee he was from kirioth a village about 10 miles south of hebron in judah so he was an outsider we also know that he was keeper of the money purse, entrusted by Jesus with the group's common funds. And John tells us that Jesus recently chastised Judas publicly at a dinner party in Bethany. I read to you from John chapter 12. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner party for him there, and Martha served, as usual, while Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, the sister of Martha, took a liter of costly perfumed oil made from genuine aromatic nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and dried them with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I love that phrase. Only John, who was there, remembered that. What, 50, 60 years later, when he wrote the gospel according to John, when he wrote these lines, he could smell that perfume. It was so, so real. Like the Madeline in Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. The smell brought all the memories flooding back. And John continues, Then Judas the Iscariot, one of his disciples, and the one who would betray him, said, Why was this oil not sold for 300 days' wages and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he held the money bag and used to steal the contributions. Well, if we read the entire gospel according to John, John does not like Judas. So I think we have to take that phrase with a grain of salt. He used to steal the money from the money bag. Perhaps he did, but that's John's view of Judas. Perhaps he didn't like him at the time, he was an outsider, and he betrayed Jesus in the end. He's writing this 50 to 60 years later. Well, John tells us he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he stole the money. Jesus said, and listen to the tone, Leave her alone. Let her keep this for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me with you. Now perhaps that's the motive. Maybe Judas felt humiliated and stung by Jesus' public rebuke. Judas's anger, prompting him to betray the Lord. That might be understandable. But you know, it's very difficult to discern someone's motives, even in the best of circumstances. And with Judas, it's even more difficult. Here are some other possibilities. As little more than a petty thief, Judas saw the opportunity to betray Jesus for the money. But again, it wasn't enough money to motivate such a betrayal. After all, Judas had witnessed the teaching, the preaching, the healing. He had listened to the Sermon on the Mount. How many times did Jesus repeat that Sermon on the Mount in one form or another? He had witnessed Jesus raising the dead. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus. He was intimate with Jesus for three years. I I just don't see it. Perhaps Judas firmly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but perhaps grew disillusioned at Jesus' actions. After all, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and he didn't go after the Romans, the military occupation, He went after the religious leaders. And if Judas is from a very conservative area of the country, that may have rubbed him in the wrong way, or at least confused him. Perhaps disillusioned him, criticizing the religious leaders. Huh. Also, Judas may have believed that Jesus needed to be restrained until after Passover, agreeing with the religious leaders that Jesus' behavior would likely cause a catastrophic riot at the festival. The pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, Passover being the largest, the population of Jerusalem would expand from 100,000 people to upwards of a million. And they didn't like the Romans. And they were unhappy with the whole arrangement. And Jesus had that crowd in his hand. Remember how he went after the religious leaders? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he called them snakes, a brood of vipers, a whitewashed tomb. He told them they're going to hell. He really went after them. And perhaps Judas thought, like the high priest Caiaphas, In the gospel, according to John, when the Sanhedrin met privately to decide what to do with Jesus, and they debated, well, maybe he is the Messiah. How could he be the Messiah? Messiah's from Bethlehem, he's from Nazareth, and on they went. But finally, Caiaphas stood up, and he said, you don't get it. It is more expedient that one man die than the entire nation perish, because that's what's at stake. Every day after Palm Sunday, Jesus upped the ante. Every day he went after the religious leaders more and more aggressively. And if after the seven woes, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, if he came back the next day and escalated again, it would be as if the religious leaders were standing with Jesus in a room up to their knees in gasoline, each holding a lit match. One wrong move and Jerusalem would go up in flames. It would be the end of Judaism, the end of temple worship, the end of the nation as they knew it. And I think perhaps Judas really understood that. Perhaps Judas, knowing Jesus' teaching, was simply baffled by what was happening in Jerusalem and thought, If only I could get Jesus away from the crowds and the religious leaders away from the crowds because they were both playing to the crowds, get them together for a private meeting, they could sort out their differences and resolve this. After all, didn't Jesus say, Blessed are the peacemakers? And perhaps that was Judas' motivation. To go to the Sanhedrin, arrange to bring Jesus there, have them talk things over, and resolve the issue. Because Judas knew, as Caiaphas knew, that if Jesus comes back tomorrow and escalates again, it will be a bloodbath. Blessed are the peacemakers, perhaps. I rather like that possibility. Another is that Judas was simply following Jesus' instructions thus ensuring that Jesus would be turned over and put to death in order to fulfill scripture. He said after the Mount of Transfiguration, we're going to Jerusalem, I'll be arrested, tried, crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. And he went to Jerusalem and he made that happen. He was controlling every single event in Jerusalem during Holy Week. And perhaps he used Judas to get it done. I don't know that i go that far, but I think Judas perhaps had genuine motives to be a peacemaker. Well, but you say, Satan entered Judas. Yes, he did. But how does Satan tempt someone? Does he say, betray the Lord. You know who he is. Betray him. No, he wouldn't do that. Judas would enter very subtly. He would sidle up to Judas and say, you know, you're right in what you're thinking. If Jesus escalates again tomorrow, it will be a bloodbath. And he said, you are to be peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know this. You heard him teach that how many times? Go to the religious leaders. They're intelligent men. They'll listen. They want to resolve this too. And I think that is a really good possibility. But it all turns bad. Jesus is indeed arrested. He's tried by the Sanhedrin, turned over to the Romans, and crucified. And when Judas sees all this happen, He goes back to the Sanhedrin, throws the money back. I betrayed innocent blood. And he goes out and hangs himself. The actions of a man whose plan went horribly wrong. And I rather like to follow that direction. But history hasn't. History has condemned Judas. The best ending for a discussion about Judas is in Dante's Divine Comedy, in Canto 34 of the Inferno. In the Divine Comedy, in the Inferno, Virgil, the Latin poet, takes Dante on a journey through hell, purgatory, and paradise, where he hands Dante over to Beatrice, Dante's great love, who's in paradise as a glowing light. But when they get to the ninth circle of hell, the very bottom of hell, Virgil and Dante, listen to this. Canto 34, beginning at line 37. Oh, how amazed I was when I looked up and saw a head, one head, wearing three faces, One was in front, and that was bright red. The other two attached themselves to this one just above the middle of each shoulder, and at the crown, all three were joined in one. Isn't that a grotesque picture? In each of his three mouths, he crunched a sinner. With teeth like those that rake the hemp and flax, keeping three sinners constantly in pain. The one in front. The biting he endured was nothing like the clawing that he took. Sometimes his back was raked clean of its skin. That soul up there who suffers most of all, my guide, Virgil explained, is Judas Iscariot, the one with head inside and legs out kicking. Oh, what an end. What an end to Judas. Well, that's it for today, friends. I'll be back with you on Friday. Blessings to all of you. Bye-bye now.